0: Welcome to the Elite Level Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Elaine, and this is the podcast where we explore how elite performers think, act, and operate. On this week's episode, I decided to mix things up a little bit and seeing as I get so many questions on all different social media platforms, I thought, why don't I let you guys into my world a little bit more, tell you a little bit more about my story, along with choosing 10 different questions that are either from most commonly asked ones or things that I just suspected people would want to know. So hopefully you will enjoy it this week. Let's not waste any more time. Let's get right into it. So the first question Alex, why did you get into sales? It's a great first question. So the reason I got into sales was if I go right back to the very beginning of, I guess, my early life, I was always very, very entrepreneurial. I was that child in the in the playground, buying, selling sweets. I remember when I was age 13, I set up an eBay store. Buying and selling, and people were asking me, Alex, how are you making all of this money? I was also a professional gamer on the side. So I had many different things going on, but always found that I was just a doer. I always felt that I had to be doing something and trying to earn some money in some kind of way. And so as I got a little bit older, eventually got to university age, or for any of my US listeners, college age, as I believe you guys call it there. And when I got to that point, I actually got a full scholarship studying corporate law. And so I spent about eight months studying law, to be completely honest with you, I hated it. I didn't enjoy it at all. And as much as I think for my mother, she really wanted me to pursue a career of that nature. I felt just deep down in my heart that this just really wasn't for me. And there were other people that I'd seen that were out in the city in some kind of sales career or doing something pretty dynamic out there in the city. And I remember going and visiting Canary Wharf one day and getting some work experience at a company called Thompson Reuters. And I just caught a bug for being in the city, being out there, being a part of deals and seeing how everything just really worked out there. And so eventually, eight months in, I dropped out of the law program and I got my very first role actually in a sales role selling printers and copiers. In that first row, I was actually what we call a BDR or what many people call an SDR now. So I was booking tons and hundreds of different appointments for more senior salespeople out there. And it was a a grind to say the least. It was just constantly hammering the phones. I didn't have much data to make it happen, but I really, really did enjoy it. And I remember in my first few months, I won an award for best new starter. I got given box tickets to go and see Arsenal. And at that point I said, I'm sold. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. So in a nutshell, I think it was just that perfect balance between being able to combine my entrepreneurial flair with an opportunity for my performance to have a direct impact on my income and also just being able to meet people. I love networking. I love meeting people. So in a nutshell, that's my story and my journey into sales. Let's move on to question number two. So number two is what are the most important parts of a sales process? It's a broad question, but it's a good question. So I often say in in any sales transaction, If you don't have some kind of pain and initiative that you've identified within that customer and also a champion to someone that's selling on your behalf when you're not actually in the room, you're really going to struggle to drive a meaningful software sales or meaningful enterprise deal. So really those are the probably two most key ingredients. I'll quickly touch on both in a bit more detail and then we'll move on to the next question. So when we talk about finding pain and initiative, This is really about trying to understand within that particular customer, where are the real value drivers where you can have impact and truly transform that organization's current state and then helping to take them to a new reality. So you need to find pain and challenges and value drivers that have a meaningful amount of willingness for change. So that you're in a position where that organization is going to be willing to part with money or budget to actually drive that change. When we then talk about finding champions and people that are willing to sell on your behalf, the first thing you've got to do is actually identify them. So you need to look for people who actually drive action within an organization. They have influence and a level of power. And there's many different ways that you can go about identifying that from looking at their tenure. You need to test them. But ultimately, you need to know that when you're not actually there, that you've got someone at that customer's organization that is going to drive you forward and put you in a position where you can actually have your organization best represented when you're not in the room. If you're enjoying this so far, depending on where you're watching or listening, if you're watching on YouTube, please be sure to make sure you smash that like button. Leave me a comment for any future questions that you might have down the line. And if you're listening on any of the podcast platform, I'd really appreciate a five star review and a written one if you got the time as well. Let's move on to question number three. So what is the biggest deal you have done and how did you do it? This takes me back a little bit. So, the biggest deal that I've done, I believe it was in 2019 or around that kind of time with one of the larger, let's say, food delivery companies out there. And the deal in total was for 8.5 million in USD over two years. It was 5 million in the first year and 3.5 million in the second year. Truly phenomenal deal. It was a landmark deal for the organization. It was the biggest in their history, certainly at that time. The second part of the question is, how did we get it done? A massive part of this particular transaction was really knowing and understanding who were the different movers and shakers within the organization. And we had a really, really compelling champion in this particular customer. So someone who really wrapped their arms around what we did as an organization and was truly campaigning our message at the other end. And so we spent a lot of time really trying to understand what are the value drivers, what are we really solving against, working through a really tight what we call business value assessment. So mapping out all of the metrics that we knew we could latch onto to drive actual meaningful and quantifiable change for that organization. Spent a ton of time building that case, getting our execs mapped to their execs at the customer side as well. I remember we had a really challenging curveball that came in quite late in that deal where they actually hired a new person on their procurement side to really interrogate us and, and push us on the deal. But we eventually got it done on the very last day of the quarter. It was difficult times, I remember, because the, the hours were counting down and I was really questioning whether it was going to happen. But we got there in the end, we persevered, and it was a, it was a phenomenal moment in my career. Let's move on to the next question. Is being money motivated a bad thing? Another broad question and and an interesting one. And I'm sure a lot of different people have got many different perspectives on this one. So in my view, money, I see more than anything else as a tool. It's a lever. It puts you in a position where you can create transformative experiences in your life and create a level of comfort for yourself, your family and anyone else that's important and meaningful to you. So I definitely don't think that being money motivated in its purest sense is a bad thing, but I think that you've got to be really cautious if it's the all encompassing and the only thing. Because the question then becomes, if you have a bad month or a bad year in your career and you haven't earned a lot of money, and that's the only thing that's intrinsically driving you, then what are you going to do at that point? You've got to have other factors, otherwise, things that are a little bit more meaningful, whether they're legacy driven or whether they're things that, you know, you might, certain goals that you might have had from earlier in your life. You've got to have other factors that are pushing you and not solely money because money comes and it goes And I think more than anything else, it's not getting too wrapped up in necessarily the the materialistic things, but things that are more experience based in your life that are going to give you more lasting happiness. That doesn't mean that, quote unquote, materialistic things don't have their own place a lot of people know me I I love my cars and some people might see that as materialistic but the reality is these were goals that I had when I was younger and there's nothing that's going to stop me going out there and and crushing my goals whether they're materialistic experience based or otherwise so I think you've just got to go out there and fire on all cylinders let's move on to the next question here so how do you choose the right company I think this is a really interesting one because I've been a, a number of different organizations throughout my career. Some decisions that have been fantastic, others that uh, probably could be uh, desired if I had the chance to go back and change them. So when I think of the, the best company career decisions I've made, and I'd say the organization I'm at now is probably arguably the best career decision I've made. It's because I've spent a lot of time actually making sure that I had clear criteria around what the company needed to look like and what I was trying to get out of that particular step in my career. So I remember before joining the current company I'm at now, Lacework, I spent a lot of time trying to understand what leaders do I want to be surrounded by? what legacy do I want to leave as I come in and and eventually come out the other end of this organisation? You know, what do I want my financial situation to look like? But ultimately, what am I trying to get out of this experience? And so having clear criteria around the organisation, the leadership, the structure, the market opportunity, the size of it, and is this this organisation the right company to tap into that potential market opportunity that you might have uncovered, All of these questions become really, really important because when you take any career decision, I say it's like playing chess and not checkers. You've got to make the right move at the right time. Not, you know, necessarily look to jump too quickly, but also not necessarily stay beyond your point of where you're actually growing. And I've certainly been at organizations at a certain time where I may have been earning really well or seemingly in a great position. But unfortunately, on the other side, I didn't feel I was growing or developing. And we only get one shot at this thing we call life. So driving legacy and putting yourself in a position where you're continually pushing yourself and seeking out uncomfortable situations, I feel is really important to make sure you stay in your growth zone. Let's move on to the next question here. So what are your long-term career goals? Interesting one. This is something that's really evolved over the years, I would say. As I I sit here today, one of my probably biggest career objectives has always been to get towards becoming a a CRO one day or a chief revenue officer, where I'd have responsibility for sales and any revenue generating business units within an organization. And I believe that's probably still the objective. I used to have a big thing about being a company founder, and and who knows, that may certainly be a part of the future. We'll have to see what opportunities come up at, at a certain time. But I think being able to have responsibility for an area that I'm so passionate about in sales and any other business units that contribute to driving revenue for an organisation, it is certainly something that I'd love to know that I've done in my career at some point. When that opportunity comes, who knows right now, I'm really enjoying the journey I'm on. I'm learning a ton and trying to surround myself with a lot of leaders that have walked this journey and done it in a way that they can certainly be proud of. and so. I think being a part of these hyper growth stories at the moment is helping to teach me a ton. And then hopefully one day I can take that learning, continue to learn from a lot of the great leaders that are around me and eventually go out there and and drive some phenomenal results for a company myself. Last three questions now. Last four questions, actually. So how much money can you make in software sales? So as you all know, I love what I do. Software sales is, is certainly a home for me. I would say that when I look at some of the reps I've seen out there, and of course, I'm not going to speak about my earnings specifically, but certainly in this career, there's people as reps that can earn multi seven figures and and there's everyone that, you know, can earn more in the tens of thousands and up. But I think the thing that's really, really exciting about software sales as a broader ecosystem at the moment is that we're really empowering the future. And I think when you're in a position where you're in the tech space in software specifically and playing a role in innovation for the future, there's a lot of upside in terms of potential money that you can earn. But also just from an experiential standpoint, the experiences and the growth that you can have in your career at the moment is just astronomical within this space. We're seeing people reaching promotions in records amount of time as we've said, earning more that they've ever earned, but actually growing their network and their profile in such a fashion that's truly phenomenal. Many of you may know, uh, I've also been a two times LinkedIn top voice. And so as much as it's not specifically on the question, I'd also advise everyone to start to think about how can you grow and scale your personal brand? Because that's another thing that's gonna contribute to your earning potential. When you've got a notable brand, it gives you a chance to one, have a better brand internally, but also externally, which can open up other revenue generating opportunities. So the space couldn't be any hotter right now. Earning potential can go into the multi seven figures for the elite performers that are doing it consistently and certainly at the lower end, either the multi tens of thousands and and certainly, you know, basic salaries that, that go into six figures plus. Now it's the last three questions. Here we are. Again, if you are enjoying this and watching on YouTube, please make sure you smash that like button, leave a comment, five star review on any podcasting platforms. We got to keep growing the elite level podcast here. So what separates elite performers? It really makes me think a lot about the question of are top salespeople born or are they made or actually are elite performers in any industry born or made. And I think in many circumstances, I go back to that saying that you can have natural talent, but hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. And the reality is, is that you can teach someone a framework for success. You can teach them a blueprint and all of these types of things. But if they don't combine that with the passion, the drive, the hunger, energy and enthusiasm to go out there and want to crush their goals, ultimately you're not really going to achieve much. So what I see from elite performers is they find that perfect balance of bringing all of that hunger, that energy and that enthusiasm and combining it with a real aptitude and a thirst for learning to take on a proven system for success. And they obsess about the details to make sure that they can interpret that process or that system, go out and combine that with all of that energy, and then they go and make it happen. All of that is on top of having great operating rhythms outside of the way that you work. So how do you wake up? Do you optimize for sleep? It's all about having those 1% marginal gains that are going to make you that bit better and that much more effective than other people. And what I see from the elite is they're not necessarily massively good in any one particular area, but they're 1% good in 30 different ways, which gives them that 30% advantage in total over other people out there. Last two questions. Alex, what does your daily routine look like? Now, this is something that I'd say has gotten a lot better over the actually the, the last few months. It, it's always been good, but it's not been great, certainly in terms of the way that I sleep and my nighttime routine. So now I've really got a clear operating rhythm with with how I wake up. The very first thing I do is that I meditate as soon as I get out of bed and I always aim to get up around the same kind of time then immediately I'll I'll brush my teeth and get my mind centered for really what the day has to come in store. So I make sure that I don't touch my phone. I always meditate while I'm brushing my teeth. I get my mind centered around what I have to do for the day and then I'll go to the gym. And as I'm going down to the gym, I might have a quick look on my phone to see what's coming up ahead. Don't spend too much time on it, but I'll go to the gym and look to work out as early as I can to put myself in a position where my mind's centered, the endorphins are flowing, and we're ready to rock for the day. On the flip side, then at nighttime, what I'll do is again meditate a good amount before bedtime. And then I set myself up by journaling. And then after I journal, I'll go out there, read a book. After I've read the book, I then get into bed and uh, look to get some rest. And I always aim to get around eight hours if I can. I've never been the best sleeper, so six hours is probably a little bit more common for me. But that's pretty much what my routine looks like. From a sales perspective in terms of day-to-day, I often talk about myself as being a little bit, uh, working a little bit like I'm in the NFL. So I sprint, stop, sprint, stop. And then I look to make sure that I take some breaks where I can get some fresh air or something like that as well. And that's really worked well for me, certainly in recent times. And I plan to to continue that way. So let's move on to the final question here. My greatest advice to my younger self. It's a really difficult one because there's there's so many things I, I could think about now that if I was talking to younger Alex would now be a part of the way that I think and operate. But the biggest thing I'd probably say is just to really get out there and get after it and understand that the greatest return on investment that I should really focus on is my time. I can manufacture more money. There's many other things in life that I can manufacture more of, but I can never regain more time. So there's a lot of opportunities that maybe in my life I'd pass up on or delayed or offset. But I'd really say to that younger Alex that you truly get one opportunity You can't manufacture more time to just go out there and really make the most of every single second that I have. You know, take advantage of every opportunity that lands on my lap, push myself, put myself in uncomfortable situations and just go out there and get after it. So that would probably be my main piece of advice to younger self. I hope that this has been helpful in terms of getting to know me a little bit better along with learning a little bit more about how I think about sales process, choosing the right company and everything in between. I've asked a couple of times on this already, but please leave some reviews like depending on whatever platform you're looking on and be sure to stay tuned for the next episode.